In the case of future work, I think there's a lot of questions about what is recovery going to look like. Many companies have had to close because their labor forces had to stay home. Do you mechanize more and do you automate more and do you automate fast? Some of the jobs that are going to be available when they return to the workplace. Welcome to the Blue Continent Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Pertzer, International Research Coordinator for the Blue Continent Alliance, the Blue Continent Podcast, and your Blue Continent. What this program is about, this podcast, what makes it unique is, is finding people who have knowledge or expertise or have worked to address in a sustainable way a lot of global development issues. Ray, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And for those who don't know you already, you're currently the director of the KO School at Notre Dame of Global Affairs, right? And also, um, previously, you had, a, I mean, you've got a towering resume from your extensive work more than two decades at the uh, Oxfam America. Just really pleased to, to welcome you to my program and to have a chance to engage with you a bit about the, either the work you've done, what you see on the horizon, and uh, what you're engaged with now. So thank you so much. Great. Delighted to be able to join you. Maybe one little corrective. I'm the actually the director of the Pulte Institute, which is mm. Pulte Institute for Global Development, which is within the Keogh School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, just to kind of be more precise. But that Okay, very, very <laughs> precise there. Yeah. That's within right. the within the right. Well, that's cool. Personally, I've been out to Notre Dame many times. I used to live in Elkhart, Indiana, which is not too far, the same part of the state. And it's a beautiful city and it's such a great place to be. I hope the weather is treating you well and the virus is not playing on people in your family or anything. No, no, everyone is safe. And although the university, and as is the case with many universities around the United States, has you know, been closed and going through a big planning process as to how it will be reopening in the fall. So that a lot of what many of us are spending our time on now is thinking and preparing for that, that eventuality. Yeah. How are they approaching it? Or how many students do you have engaged in your specific institute or school there at KO and at the Pulte Institute? Well, the Pulte Institute basically is a research institute. So we're fundamentally doing international research programs around the world funded by federal government agencies, foundations, and corporations. And we involve students in those as well as faculty across the university. And our primary objective is basically to promote interdisciplinary research on contemporary global topics. Yeah. And obviously right now, COVID is sort of at the top of that list, but yeah. otherwise we'd be focusing on you know, inequality and poverty issues in the humanitarian sphere and having to do with global governance, global health, role of business in the process of development in many societies around the world. That's largely what we do. Notre Dame has about 13,500 students, about 8,500 undergraduates. And within the Keogh School, there are something like nine institutes along in total besides the one that I'm, I'm involved in. So it's a rather large, complex operation. Prior to COVID striking everybody, what were you engaged in researching right there? Well, I'm the director of a, a center that has 22 staff. So the staff were involved in all variety of different kinds of research and teaching activities within the university and then beyond. In some cases, we're working on, we have projects on child labor, we have projects that have an environmental sort of element to them, we have some projects that have kind of a humanitarian focus in certain regions of the world, working on sort of higher education, strengthening in different countries. It's a wide array of different topics. Okay, so there's the whole smorgasbord full of uh, topics. Exactly, you guys exactly. Okay. I was wondering if there were any particular ones that you, you felt like just kind of were really exciting to you 
that that you felt like you'd want to share with my audience, for example? Well, I think probably one I'm two that I'm probably engaged in right at the moment is in some significant way our concerns around the whole inequality question, which I think is kind of presenting itself in very interesting ways around the COVID experience. And we're sort of seeing, you know, the impacts of growing inequality and accelerating inequality across the United States as this pandemic is affecting particular populations in all sorts of different kinds of ways. So that's one area. And then the other one which I'm involved in is the whole issue of future of work and what you know, is likely to be the sort of future of work going forward. And that was, you know, both of these topics were ones that we were working on uh, in one fashion or another before the pandemic hit. Right. But it's interesting that with the pandemic, you know, underway, there's a kind of an interesting evolution in those topics and how mm -hmm. they're likely to be treated going forward that have to do with, you know, I think rising public awareness of inequality as an issue in the United States and globally. The implications yeah. it has for the process of globalization, which has sort of reshaped the world over the last 30 years, and whether you know globalization as it has been practiced is a good thing, or whether we need to kind of rethink aspects of it. In other words, how we are yeah. connected, how much this interdependence is a good thing, and to what degree, you know, maybe in some ways it needs to be somehow redefined so that you know you can care better for your populations in terms of how benefits are distributed, and. In the case of future of work, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, what is recovery going to look like, you know, given the fact that, you know, many companies have had to close because the labor force, you know, their labor force has had to stay home. Do you mechanize more and do you automate more and do you automate faster? In which case, you know, in other words, that people who are out of work now may not find that some of the jobs that they were accustomed to, you know, having in, uh, access to in the past were, are going to be available when they when they return to the workplace. So how yeah. is that whole, you know, how are we, how is work going to be repositioned? And even things like office jobs, you know, what is it going to mean for where people work and how they work? So for example, in New York City, is New York City where you have very dense sort of workspaces, is that a very healthy environment for work? Are offices going to have to give people more, you know, open space between you know, cubicles? Are they going to move offices out of the city because they can buy space more cheaply? And are the major, you know, towers in Manhattan going to become residential towers rather than office towers? Is commercial real estate going to become residential real estate because of the redefinition of work and how it has to be done, where it's going to be done, and so on and so forth? So there's a whole lot of new kinds of questions that are emerging out of the COVID crisis that They're are great questions. going to be, we're just starting to ask them. And, and frankly, I think in some cases, we're at the asking stage more than the research stage on these because COVID is redefining everything. You know, as much here in the United States as in countries, you know, outside the United States and all over the world, these same questions will, will probably be confronted in one fashion or another. Yeah, there are so many questions that spin off of all of those topics. Uh, for example, I was looking at relocating to West Virginia, of all places, uh, last year. And I was looking into the local issues because I was going to work at a newspaper out there. I used to run newspapers. And in this very rural area, I'm talking to local politicians and saying, hey, what are some of the challenges that you're facing here? And they said, well, internet access is the main thing, that you could be in this beautiful place, but it's far enough away that there's no broadband access, right? So, like, they knew that there'd be a whole population of people that would want to relocate out there and be just happy living kind of a ranch lifestyle or something. 
if they could just, you know, connect and work remotely. But that's not an option because they don't have that kind of broadband access. So you looking at a scenario where the opportunities of everyone in their county, for example, could be impacted or improved by adding that broadband and allowing people at a higher wage level that want to work remotely from living out there. Because, you know, you're comparing that with working and living in a big city where expenses are huge and everything. If it's not necessary for you to be somewhere, then the use totally, you know, the old adage is uh, location, 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 right? When that's why property values are so high in large cities like that. But if you're taking away one of the main reasons why people need to be there, you're really impacting property values everywhere. Well, I think the whole issue of broadband access is a really interesting one. And maybe just to go, you know, give you a couple of examples where, you know, I think that's going to be an issue we really have to look at is that, you know, right now, whether you're talking about elementary, secondary, or higher education, inequality plays itself out in terms of broadband access. When everybody had to lock down, whether you had a first grader or you had a senior in college, your economic position in society would determine whether your child got educated or not, because mm -hmm. it would determine whether you had brought, you had access to technology in your home hmm. for your college student or for your first grader. Yep. And it would determine the quality of the kind of transmission they might receive. You might have a poor quality transmission, in which case you can't, you're participating somewhat. It almost exacerbated the kind of learning process, even at the level of, you know, elite universities where there's been a lot of emphasis on diversity. We know that within our own student bodies, even at Notre Dame and probably at Harvard and Princeton and elsewhere, there's been all these efforts to accommodate the fact that you've got students who literally, in the best of cases, have to go down to Starbucks to be online to take a class. And if they have five classes, they spend all day in Starbucks because that's the only place nearby they can get on. Oh, line. yeah. And if they live yeah. in rural Maine, where, you know, I've traveled frequently, you can't, you know, you can't even get a cell phone call through. So many rural counties <laughs> in the state of Maine, you probably have this problem in spades. And so I think, and then certain cities have actually looked at the question of whether they should be providing free broadband to their communities, particularly to service the fact that, you know, large segments of their population do not have access and can't afford it. And yet it becomes more and more of an economic necessity for certain families. And now we're realizing how much of a necessity it's going to be going forward. So a lot of, I think, cities are thinking about, you know, if they have to go online for a second surge in the fall, how are they going to reach all their students? And, you know, what accommodations are they going to have to make for that? Well, I wanted to maybe just maybe add a point here about the work broader working from home phenomenon so you know the tech companies have this is an inter, this is kind of a future of work rather than an inequality point but it it two things sort of you know intertwine in some ways in silicon valley you know the major tech companies have these large campuses which they have sustained and pay premium yeah. rentals on in prime real estate markets and now they've told everybody to work at home but now they're telling them you know we want you to work at home indefinitely and so now many of those people are saying, well, do I need to be in San Francisco where I'm paying, you know, two and a half million dollars to buy a house? Or could I be in West Virginia? Or could I be in near Denver or in Colorado somewhere on a nice mountaintop? Or could I be in, you know, Asheville, North Carolina doing this work? And the companies are saying, oh, yeah, you can be in all these different places. However, we're going to cut your salary to basically reflect their cost of living in wherever you're going. Wow. So there's a big fight going on, you know, about, well, so... Is that really the way this should all work itself out? Or is the work that I'm doing sort of technically worth the same, whether I'm in North Carolina or whether I'm in Silicon Valley? So it's going to be interesting thing. to see how this will play itself out in the tech industry. But And then the, what the tech companies are doing is in across, you know, whether you're in Boston and Cambridge or whether you're in Silicon Valley, is they're really seeing real estate costs as 
an impediment to retaining staff and what it, how it affects their bottom line in terms of paying for all this real estate. So now they're cutting back on office size and saving the rent and distributing the labor force across the country, but then trying to figure out ways they can cut back on salaries as well to increase profitability. So we're going to see a titanic change or, you know, yeah. in this whole industry. I was going to say, you compound that with, say, people are relocating all over the country and they're not working in Silicon Valley anymore, as the example you gave. Well, what if they were offering a kind of a gold star health plan or something that was regionally based, right? Now, suddenly, obviously, there are more options today than there were, say, 20 years ago, as far as being able to purchase into a different health plan. But if you suddenly relocated to North Carolina, in the example you gave, suddenly you can't really be part of that regional health network that was originally being offered by the company. So you have to modify that as well. Well, but most Blue Cross Blue Shield programs offer programs where you can opt either into the local healthcare network or you can opt to access the healthcare through network providers wherever you are. That's pretty common now because there's so much mobility in the labor market. And I'm not worried about the tech sector. They can always afford to buy insurance. That's not the sector I'm terribly worried about. They can probably buy it three times over without breaking the sweat. So I was wondering also, your institute, which is has always specialized in global development, are you dedicating more of your resources to looking at studying policy research, such as this whole example about relocating your work remotely? You're able to study domestic issues such as this, even though it's a global studies institute? We live in a globalized world, and the way, you know, with the last sort of UN discussion on the World Summit that created the Sustainable Development Goals, I think there was a realization that we live in a world where many of these problems are similar no matter where you go. I mean, yeah. if you're in India today and, or even Bangladesh, they have very sophisticated IT sectors that are actually linked up to the Silicon Valleys and to the Cambridge, Massachusetts, and providing a lot of services and backbone services for consumers in this country and in Europe and elsewhere. So we live in a globalized world now where these kinds of consolidation issues or future of work questions and automation questions are, are going to affect people in those countries, probably in somewhat different ways and maybe not at the same pace, hmm. but they will in time affect them. And so, for example, across Africa, there's a concern that if we had rapid, for example, this is a theoretical concern at this point, but it's one worth watching. If you had accelerating sort of automation, and you could lower costs and you could in some ways simplify production, yet increase volume in the sort of places where manufacturing is done now. But African countries ever industrialize. Yeah. So in other words, there's this whole notion that you could have premature deindustrialization across the African continent when the African continent is the fastest growing segment of the global population. What does that suggest? It could be scenarios, which then you trigger mass migration. And if you add climate change impacts to that, which is already triggering out migration. You know, you have, you can sort of see sort of interesting patterns of new migration trends, new opportunities perhaps for developing countries and, you know, production in Africa that's maybe more cost-effective, but it's not, may not embrace the large and growing population that you're going to see there in the coming decade. No, it total sense. You know, it reminds me, this whole line of discussion reminds me of this video that I'm producing right now from my last visit to Bangladesh, which is a country you used to work in as well many years ago. In Bangladesh, there's a Norwegian software development company that a Norwegian owned, but, you know, set up there. And, and their IT techs that have, uh, that are creating different applications, custom applications and everything, but they've taken this whole Scandinavian mindset of a flat playing field 
where everybody is treated with the, the same respect and expectations that you deal with uh, somebody who would be a Scandinavian, you know, if you were talking to somebody there. And it's totally changed. The whole mindset is quite different than if you grew up in Bangladesh your whole life and no one ever treated you with that total equality. And now they give the, the workers, expect you to work just basically normal eight, nine hour day and go home and be with your family and give you all the time off that, that a human being needs so that they can live a balanced life and then they can be retained. You're not pushing them too hard, making them work over weekends, work till nine o'clock at night, which is really the idea within that industry a lot of the time when you outsource to another country in a developing country and they just work you to death and then you just drop off. You're just like, eh, burn you out. And they don't do that. They respect the human condition. I first moved to Bangladesh in the late, late 80s, early 90s. And at that time, there was no internet. There was one local TV station that was had terrible programming. And there was, it was very difficult to make an international phone call. And within seven years, they had introduced the internet. They had begun to expand the garment industry. When I got to Bangladesh, there were 50 garment factories. There's 5,000 today. It, the garment industry itself accounts for 23% of the, I think, the GDP for the country, maybe even higher than that, I don't know. But I think there's quite a large number of people who work in that particular industry. It's a major pillar for the economy. And of course, the Bangladesh economy is one of the fastest growing economies in the world right now, 9%. The internet has revolutionized that society. You can go anywhere in that country and you will have more bands than you will have you know, on your phone than you will have in the state of Maine. That's true. That's a very It matter important. where you go. You can go up into the jungles in the north on the Indian border and you can make a phone call to your mom in Augusta, Maine. doesn't yep. matter. This is a good example of a country that has experienced some of the positive aspects of globalization on the one hand. And in terms of these labor conditions, the other aspect of this was when those first garment factories went in, the wages were very, very low and they're still relatively quite low compared to sort of international wages for garment production. But there's been enormous international pressure to improve working conditions and the professional class of managers. The tech sector has taken off. It's become very sophisticated. It's very, for young Bangladeshis, male or female, it's very exciting to be, get into a tech-oriented job somewhere. There's variety, I think there's three or four different internet providers in the country now. They're connected by cable television to the world so that you, know, you can get 120 channels and probably yeah. 50 channels that are in Bengali. So it's a very different world today, but it yeah. still suffers some of the problems of a country that you know has a very large population, and many of that great percentage of that population lives in rural areas, and you know is harvesting rice in tra very traditional ways as they as they have for centuries. And in the face of this COVID pandemic, they suffer the consequences of a weak health system. Yeah. And then they also have the largest refugee population in the world on the, in the Rohingya camps on the southern border with over a million. We don't even know the full, you know, the total number. It's probably somewhere over a million refugees in that camp that they're tending to as COVID is moving through the country. It's a really, you know, so I'm actually one of the two countries I'm following during this pandemic are basically that I think, you know, will tell us a lot about how dangerous this disease is going to be are, are Bangladesh and Yemen. Bangladesh, oh, yeah. because the population density is so intense and the health system is so limited and weak, 
relative to the need. The population density, I mean, is such that the prime minister, when she began these lockdowns a month or two ago, you know, asked a segment of the population to consider leaving this, the, the capital city to kind of thin out the population. So people went back to their rural villages, basically to kind of wait this thing out. Now they're actually starting to reopen again, but that doesn't resolve the issue of population density and the spread of the disease. And, and they don't have the testing capability. The lines at hospitals are one or 2,000 people you know, long, and they've got very few testing kits to test the people that are waiting online. And people who have non-COVID-related illnesses can't even get into the hospital. So they're concerned about a TB crisis because inoculations are not being given to children for TB. So there's all sorts of other sorts of things happening in the context of the COVID there because of the complexity of the environment, the population density, and the fragility of the health system. And this is something we're gonna see in other countries as well, that Bangladesh is a good case to study because it's it does have some strong institutions. It's got strong not-for-profits. It's got government that's being, I think, reasonably responsive and responsible. But nonetheless, it's got some big structural and, and other challenges that make it complex. Yemen, on the other hand, is a country at war. Yeah. The massive, population that is suffering extreme malnutrition, extreme hunger. And the fighting hasn't, you know, while there's been calls for ceasefires, it hasn't necessarily stopped. NGOs, you know, that, would be, that have been critical to the response, some of them have had, like Oxfam, have had to cease operations. Doctors Without Borders are working, have taken over hospitals where the, you know, the facilities and the level of care and even the personnel were just overwhelmed. And so it's a country where we don't even know, we know in Bangladesh because there's been testing that they're sitting now, they've gone from very few cases in early March to 60,000 known yeah. cases. And I think it's 840 deaths. That's what you can actually attribute, but yeah. the number of deaths are probably much higher. And they're multiplying every week. We're going to see a kind of exponential growth in numbers in Bangladesh. And the same thing I, I think is going to happen in Yemen, except there it's going to be invisible. We're not going to see it. We're not going to know what's happening. We're not going to see it moving. So yeah. these are real challenges for the humanitarian community and, and for governments in terms of how they respond. And then, of course, if you take yeah. put a Bangladesh country with a very large poor population and you put them in lockdown, you know, you end up with a hunger problem because people can't eat. So, yeah. you know, the foreign aid systems had to adopt a program of basically mass funding for cash, a cash delivery to families to basically buy food. Or in other cases, there's efforts to kind of get food out to areas where people are going to need it. They can't probably buy it. So we're going to see a lot of complex humanitarian response in these are countries. I mention them only because I think they're hot spots. Yeah. It's been interesting. Africa so far has been the numbers in Africa are relatively low with the exception of South Africa. So we were fortunate in that respect. And, and some countries in Africa have responded like Ghana, or I think are exemplary in the way they've kind of undertaken a response. But I think we'll see more cases across Africa with some of the similar kinds of challenges that Bangladesh faces, even though they have the advantage that they don't have is the population concentration in, in Bangladesh. Ghana has about a population of a tenth of the United States, and they've had about 35 people die there right. as a result. That's quite amazing. And contrast that with Bangladesh, which has about a third of the population of the United States crammed into an area the size of Iowa, basically. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's the densest, it's the most densely populated country on earth. So if you want to watch what COVID could do, because COVID, I mean, I think the important thing to think about with COVID is it's, it's with us and it's not going to go away. And yep. anytime soon, it's not like the flu. It's not going to be seasonal. So it is going to be there and it's going to be lurking and it's going to be, in many cases, as it is in Yemen, perhaps invisible. Belarus is just forging ahead.
immediately as if there's no crisis at all. And I'm watching those numbers. Eventually, in another month or so, they're going to have more people with COVID than China had, even though there's only about 9 million people that live in Belarus. Yeah. And well, even Russia, I think Russia has been very, in some ways, circumspect about reporting numbers. And but if you track the WHO figures, you know, week to week, you'll sort of see that it's becoming on the WHO heat maps, Russia's becoming redder and redder. <laughs> and then we really don't know because the testing, the testing infrastructure, which is critical for really defeating this disease is very uneven across many of these countries. And, and that hasn't moved very much even in the last two months when we've known that's a critical resource. I mean, so it's materials are being manufactured and distributed, but there's a lot of competition for them. The costs have gone up even here in the US. I mean, we have 50 states competing for testing kits. So things that were cost one price before the COVID crisis now cost perhaps in some cases eight times that much. And so that prices many, many nations and or jurisdictions out of the price, you know, out of the market perhaps, or enables them only to buy a limited supply. Is civil defense or policing a sphere for global developers to participate in or get more actively involved in. It's not typically something we think about. We usually think about health and economic development and the environment and all these other things. But is civil policing something that people in the global development sphere could or should be thinking about? Well, I think the issue of personal security is something that's fundamental to any discussion of human rights. In other words, if you actually go back and study the history of the emergence of democratic liberal states and the notion of the social contract, one of the things you actually discover is that the original idea of people giving up their weapons in order to live peacefully with one another really began to happen in Europe when there was this notion that if I'm the, local, I'm the big landlord with all the weapons and I'm going to offer you protection in exchange for you putting down your weapons so I don't feel threatened in my, in my estate, then we have some sort of a deal here. And that out of that, and that may not even be a written understanding. It may just be a generalized understanding. That's the kind of the notion of, of the social contract. The, human, the whole notion of human rights, political, civil, economic, social, and cultural rights kind of emerged out of this idea that once you have a social contract, you had the emergence of a state, and the state is, the, in some sense, responsible for the protection of its citizens. The first and most important right that citizens expect is basic protection from the state. So the question is, how mm -hmm. does the state exercise that? And under what sort of rules and regulations and institutional framework? In the case of the United States, we opted for a somewhat interesting and novel framework, which was local policing, the assumption being local police know their community and therefore should have effective and close and cordial relations with their community leaders and with their community residents, and therefore civil unrest is unlikely. It also presumes that you know, not the civilians no longer have to be armed. And we have a particular contradiction in the U.S. where we've kind of let the Second yeah. Amendment kind of reverse that trend. So we have actually an armed civilian population, the largest armed civilian population in the world, which presents all sorts of problems for police because they assume people are armed. Whereas in other countries, you don't assume people are armed because you can't have a weapon. So it puts police in a kind of an awkward situation and it puts, I think, citizens in danger. And that's something we haven't as a country come to grips with. That's good. I think in the development sphere, I mean, I'm, I think you could probably find a varieties of different programs that are actually concerned about protection of human rights and raising questions about how civil and political rights and human rights are protected in democratic societies. And probably over the years, there have been all sorts of training programs for police forces and military all over the world within a human rights framework. 
And that has been going on. It doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it has been going on. I think the situation we have in the U.S. is unique because of our whole history of race relations and the presence of institutional racism in the society embedded, be it invisibly or overtly, and uh, how that's playing out on the police force. The other thing I think which is becoming more, I think, a healthy subject of public discussion is what is 9-11 meant to our public security systems in the U.S.? We have a whole, we have 20 years of young men coming back from being in war zones where mm -hmm. they think every person walking on the street is a potential bomber. And they're loaded with weapons that are there intended to protect them from that sort of the possibility that that individual, male or female, is going to blow them up. And then they come back to the United States and some portion of them get a job in a police force. And they have been trained to behave and feel when they feel threatened to behave as a as if they're in the military. How do you demilitarize that mentality and get them to realize they're in a different environment? and that the rules of engagement are different than a military rules of engagement. 100%. And what does it mean when the government is actually downloading its surplus military equipment to police forces all over the country? So I don't know Great. that the answer is to defund the police. I think we need to rethink and demilitarize the mindset of the police that probably been in many ways affected by a nation at war for 20 years, probably yeah. need to change the the way we're disposing of military hardware and not be shipping armored vehicles to police forces, which the Obama administration stopped, I think, toward the end of the administration, although they shipped out a lot of this equipment to these police forces before they realized it was creating a problem. Yeah, We have to grapple with the Second Amendment issues that we so we cannot seem to resolve in this country for a variety of different reasons, so that basically police feel if they're approaching a home that the person behind the door is not going you know, to basically be shooting through the door when they knock on it, because you know 90% of the people are not necessarily armed with machine guns or other high-velocity weapons. So we have a lot, of, I think we have a lot of work to do to rethink, restructure, and reimagine public security in the U.S. That's and at the heart of that is dealing with the, the whole race issue, which is basically a legacy issue that's a much deeper cultural aspect of this problem. Absolutely. I heard a couple of days ago a podcast. Sometimes I listen to the Daily Show podcast. Do you ever listen to that with Trevor Noah? No, I haven't. An incredibly heartfelt statement that he gave just in reflection of everything he was witnessing. He was basically trying to explain from his point of view what the cause of the civil unrest was, which he articulated very well from his South African perspective, basically that in any society you have this social contract, which is something you alluded to, and his explanation of how one side felt that it had been violated against them all the time. So they said, you know what, you know, if we're like, he's explaining where the looting comes from for people who are disturbed by that, that aspect of it. And he says, look, if my job is to not loot because that's our social contract, but then you're violating my social contract all the time, then, you know, why do I feel I need to abide my guidelines if you're not abiding by your guidelines? And I think that was one adept way to explain it. His book on life in apartheid South Africa is a wonderful read if you haven't read it. 
his early life was it was quite complicated and quite challenging because he sort of lived core theme of the book is he kind of lived between these two worlds and wasn't a part of fully a part of either one of them. Born a crime, right? Born, Born a, crime. a crime. It's a wonderful read. Yeah. I think he's very wise on these subjects. And but on the social contract, I mean, I think the social contract, a simple way to think about it is it's the deal. It's the deal that exists between citizens and the state. And implicitly. Implicitly. And, and then it's codified in laws and regulations and rules. And the subtle part of it, though, is it's also codified in norms. In other words, norms are, are values that are kind of part of the sort of cultural milieu that you assume are going to affect the way you are treated by another individual, a policeman or a professional yeah. or whatever. And when you have violations of not only laws, but also even fundamental norms of basic treatment, people lose confidence in the institutions. They lose. And so a lot of what holds society together is very, it's not Mm -hmm. a lot of rules. It's actually based on something very invisible, which is trust, trust in institutions and trust in norms. So the social contract for me is a very powerful concept because in some ways it's all about can a state and its leadership imbue the population with the belief that they are at all times safe and that their rights are at all times protected by the institutions that and the officials that they have elected and the institutions those individuals have created for the purpose of their protection of their rights, be they their personal security or their health or their education or whatever. And then you have large segments of the population feeling like my personal security is at risk. I can't get into the health system. My kids are subjected to the worst schools in the area I live in, and the schools are constantly being defunded, and the teachers' salaries are abysmal, and the teachers don't even want to work there anymore, and I can't get a job, and there's a food desert in my neighborhood. So that's how minority neighborhoods, minorities experience that day after day after day. I think there's an interesting thing going on with this moment, if I can put it that way, that is also not about both race and inequality, and race and inequality not only for black and brown minorities, but also for white millennials. Because I think to some degree, the younger people from their 20s now, or their late teens, 20s to their mid 30s, have been a much abused generation. The 2008, 2007, 2008 financial crash, which was could have been avoided, bankrupted people's pensions, they bankrupted their college savings, it bankrupted, it robbed them of their mortgages illegally. There was very little restitution of that. Meanwhile, Wall Street came back booming. Most of the Mm -hmm. value that's been created since the 2008 Wall Street crash has gone to billionaires. It's not gone to Main Street. So on Main Street, there's a lot of grievance. And it's not necessarily limited to people who are black or brown, but I think it's across the board. So I think what you're seeing is a little bit of Occupy Wall Street with the civil rights movement of the 1960s all together basically saying, we're fed up with what you guys think is a social contract because we're not benefiting at all. And that there's a lot more powerful, there's a lot more powerful things going on beneath the surface of this that to some degree, I think were reflected in the the popularity of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And all of that energy that went into promoting Bernie Sanders as a presidential candidate has not gone away. Yeah. That represented people across all races and with expectations of a, a new vision for what American society should be that does not include the kind of concentration of wealth, the concentration of power, preference mm-hmm. for power, money, and fame, which is kind of the governing sort of eth- ethos that sort of has come to dominate a highly consumerist and globalized mm-hmm. America today. So 
I think we're seeing the optimist in me wants to believe that these social forces can find voice and can find elements of a new vision that will be transformative. And now the, and the question is going to be for the political class is, are they going to guide that change or are they going to resist it? In which case, if they resist it, I continue to think we're going to see more and more of these street demonstrations, but they're going to perhaps morph into something broader than simply a George Floyd moment. Yeah, I can see that. And I certainly hope that that it turns into to something that's longstanding and productive that is actually moving us forward as a society. I'd like to see that. You talked a lot about norms. And like, really, there was so much of our national politic that was founded on norms, which is like building on quicksand, really, because all it takes is one figure that doesn't care about the norms to just basically brush that aside. And it's very easy to blame big D Democrats all the time for missed opportunities to actually do something. If you look back to the last time there was a Democratic majority in the Senate, it was Harry Reid was the Senate majority leader. And he was presented with ideas that he could have taken more drastic action to actually move legislation that Obama and Pelosi had wanted. And he repeatedly said, no, 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 I, I, know, I don't want to use the nuclear option for this or that or anything. Because he thought implicitly that under the norm that he understood that when Republicans retook the Senate, that they would be abiding by the same contract, you know? And of course, as soon as Leader McConnell came in there, he was like, you know, all these ideas of things that were norms that you could have done. Well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do on that. And it was a completely new playbook from the day that McConnell took over. And we've been living with that. I, I don't want to go too far on that. I'm sorry. I just well, no, I think, threw that out. I think the Senate's a very interesting. The Senate is a very old institution that has built up a whole normative culture over the 200 years that we've been a republic. And I think, frankly, those norms have been challenged. You know, I don't think it's only, you know, only over the last four years. I think, actually, if you sort of really wanted to kind of map this normative, this evolution of sort of normative decline and loss of trust in institutions, you'd probably go back further and you'd sort of just, you'd see just different moments when we yeah. were moving beyond sort of the bounds of what had been accepted behavior in, in these institutions. And the cost of that is, as I said, is I think is trust and belief. And then you end up with a normative crisis where nobody's quite sure what the rules are. Yeah. And the more, I suppose you might say, opportunistic individual might take on the idea, well, I'll just push the limit to see how far I can go. Yeah. And when that happens, the norms in some sense get automatically redefined and the boundary limits get pushed. And then the question is, can you restore a normative order? Mm. It has I to don't be think you can anymore. I think it's got to be codified in law from here on out. Does that mean we can't trust anybody anymore? You know? Well, the beauty of norm is, as opposed to laws, in other words, you can't run a, you can't necessarily run a, a Congress or a parliament exclusively on a code book because everyone would be thumbing through the code book every minute and it becomes so burdensome the institution can't run. So the, the utility of norms is that if everyone accepts that we want to make this institution work, then we have a certain code of conduct, a rules of engagement and code of conduct that is as much as we need. And then the rest of it, we run on norms of respect of our counterparts with the idea that that's going to enable us to get the most done for in the least amount of time for the greater good. That's how norms and rules get kind of balanced in the creation of legislatures. And it's only when those things begin to be eroded by 
particular individuals that you end up with a crisis like we have now. So it's going to really take, I think, a reformulation of our party structures and who we elect and how they engage. I think one of the good things going on right now is this crisis is fostering a conversation about leadership that is really important. Yeah. And competency and leadership and the competency value and leadership, that. values and leadership, performance and leadership. And every day you see individuals at all levels of the society stepping forward and taking leadership of these demonstrations. All of a sudden, within like 48 hours, they became peaceful. Order was restored. Yeah. The people who are leading these large demonstrations, they don't have control of those crowds. The only thing they can ask is to abide by certain norms of behavior and to discipline those people who are not abiding by those norms. So now they're self, those whole, those enormous crowds are self-disciplining. In the 1960s, I was part of that large demonstrations in, around civil, on civil rights and the uh, Vietnam War. And the same kinds of things had to happen because there were literally demonstrations that were much larger than what we've seen in most cities already. And in the organizing of those, you know, there were people who were volunteered to be marshals, to basically be on the perimeters, to basically be kind of advising people how to behave and, and encouraging them to limit any kind of disruption. There also were groups that were actually there to disrupt. And they were identified politically very often as groups that for whom their very existence was to be a disruptive element. And so in some ways, those organized demonstrations had to identify who those people were to make sure that they were not going to be endangering others who were in those demonstrations. I mean, there's a lot you can learn from what the 60s groups learned about how to do this kind of demonstrating in a peaceful way. As I think most of the media has suggested, 90% of the demonstrators are there to express their concerns, not necessarily to endanger property or individuals. And then the other thing that happens magically in these moments is the police learn how to deal with large demonstrations. In Washington, D.C., during the Vietnam War, the first few demonstrations of large scale, the police responded in the same kind of militaristic way that you're seeing now. But over time, they learned that if they worked with the demonstration organizers, if they set certain parameters, if they trained their police to behave in a particular way, the demonstrations could go on and there was no issue. So I think to some degree, our police forces are going to have to relearn what the police force of Washington, D.C. learned in the 1960s and police forces in other cities learned as to how to respect the right of dissent and to respect and manage the right of dissent to be expressed in mass form the way we're seeing right now. But you're seeing the emergence of these amazing sheriffs and these amazing chiefs of police in different cities. The chief of police of Houston is an incredibly impressive individual. You're seeing the emergence of mayors, African-American mayors, women mayors. You're seeing certain voices from new, from legislators you've never heard before. So there's a whole culture of people or subculture of people out there who are suddenly speaking out and getting profile who represent everything that I think we're talking about here today, who, if I'm an op optimist, I would hope that population sees them as the future rather than some of the people that perhaps are occupying these seats today. Yeah, I hope so. One of the things that it reminds me of in a strange way, but I don't know if it'll line up exactly the same. I spent two years as a Peace Corps development specialist in Ukraine. And when I was there, of course, it was right recently after the Maidan protests, where they had stood out there in the square in Kiev until finally their president resigned. And I always said to the, my friends in, in Ukraine that the reason that would never happen in the United States 
is because well people can't afford to stand out there they would never be able to because we all have rent to pay basically right we just whereas in in ukraine the families would own homes and you didn't really owe you didn't make any money but you also didn't owe anything generally so you could stand out there as long as you needed to but in this world at this moment because of covid and because of the economic crisis and because there's 25% unemployment right and there's probably 40 50% unemployment among african americans they can stand out there all day long they can stand out there for another two months if they have to you know there's nothing that's forcing them to get back to work right now right and there's nowhere for them to work so that's the danger in a democracy with the high unemployment that's why the french have such a great social contract is because they can get out there and they can protest until they get what they need anyway just that's my comment i really appreciate you coming and chatting with me for all this time and do you have any episode of your program coming up here well i think we're going to be doing two programs in the near future on our podcast it's called the global pathways podcast you can find it at the pulte institute website at the university of notre dame keo school of global development in the next week or two we're going to be interviewing one of my colleagues dr paul perrin who actually is participating in the emergence of a new program that the US Congress recently passed that has to do with increasing foreign assistance to fragile states and there's a recently passed bill entitled the Global Fragility Act so we're going to be talking about well, so what does fragility mean and how would this change the way foreign aid is delivered to particular countries what countries are we talking about so I'll be talking to Paul about that and then probably another podcast perhaps with Dr Gary Gareffi from Duke University who is a leading spokesperson and, and researcher on the whole issue of global supply chains and global supply chain performance and this is really about globalization and how supply chains are really the motor of globalization and what is current situation with covid actually mean for global supply chains and what is are we likely and what is the kind of the conflict with china mean for global supply chains and weird. are we going to see a real redesign of globalization by the return of certain businesses to the US the kind of reduction in, in the length of supply chains in other words should you be eating certain foods grown in china or should we be growing them here or should certain should we be producing more of the components of your telephone in the us versus you know importing them from china should assembly be done in mexico versus you know should we shorten the supply chains in a globalized world yeah. so that's the conversation we'll be having with uh, that sounds really fascinating i can't wait to hear that so those are two that we that at least we have i think on tap for the coming two weeks or so Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing those. Again, thank you again for joining this podcast and talking to my audience and I had a really a good time chatting. A real pleasure, Brennan, and good luck with the program and um I look forward to seeing what you produce in the future. Absolutely. Take All care, right. my friend. Have a good day. For our music in today's podcast, I'd like to thank the RFD boys with their 1972 release cover of the John Denver song Country Roads, the song Rain by Maine artist Patty Griffin. We also played The Dawn by Osibisa and music from Vilyat Khan, Shapla Shalik and Ali Akbar Khan of Bangladesh. We played Belarusian artist Kozak Family Trio, NWA, Billy Joel, and Moya Ukraina by Natalia Buczynska. And of course, our theme music, The Lone Ranger by Quantum Jump. Thanks everybody for listening to the Blue Continent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
and we hope you'll subscribe and join us again. Tell others about us. This podcast is also available in a raw video format found on our Blue Continent Alliance Facebook page. If you'd like to see our mini documentaries from around the world, visit the Blue Continent YouTube page today. Thanks again for listening. Take care.